This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Later in the hour, work to preserve the golden lion tamarind and unraveling the mysteries of the Y chromosome. But first, if you want to predict a color, you can talk about wavelengths of light, right? Around 460 nanometers, it's going to look blue. If you want to predict what something sounds like, you can talk about frequencies. 261 hertz, that sounds like middle C. But is there a way to tell what something is going to smell like? One way might be to look at a molecule and say that should smell like dirty socks or this molecule should smell like roses. Well, this week in the journal Science, researchers described developing an AI model that if you give it the structure of a chemical compound, can predict where it's likely to fall on a map of odors. For instance, is it more grassy, more meaty, more floral? Dr. Joel Mainland is one of the authors of that report. He's a member of the Monell Chemical Census Center and an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you. Okay, before we start on this new work, let's get a refresher on Smell Biology 101. I was always taught that it's sort of a lock and a key situation in your nose with smell molecules fitting into like lock receptors. Is that right? Yeah, so I think that's a good analogy at uh, the basic level and gets most of the things we care about correct. We have a more subtle understanding of that now as people have developed molecular docking tools and gotten sort of a finer grain understanding of having electronegative and electropositive interactions and things like that. So your team developed this AI model. How do you train a computer to smell things? The way to do it is to collect a lot of data. So a lot of these machine learning algorithms are very skilled at solving complicated problems, but they're very data hungry. So previous work, the sort of standard in the field used about 500 molecules to develop a model. And this work started with 5,000. We trained the model using these 5,000 odors. And we used a, a new type of architecture called a graph neural network that is very skilled at looking at molecular structure uh, in a more specific way than previous models and, and allowed us to match those two things up. Do you have like a panel of smell testers to, to help them train? Yeah, so we, we created our own panel. So we took some people in Philadelphia and trained them for about four hours to be panelists for us. And that training basically consists of us handing them a, a kit that has uh, 55 different vials in it. And each of those vials corresponds to a particular smell. So we have a vial in there for grassy, we have a vial in there for animal, and they learn what those labels mean by actually smelling those. So we train them over the course of four hours, and then the panel would smell the, the 400 molecules for us. And so then, because you know what the molecules smell like, you tell the AI, this is what this smell looks like molecularly. 
That's right. And then we do pattern matching. So the, the model will look for molecular patterns that match up to various smells that all have the same percept. Now, I'm thinking of these people who can taste a wine and come up with this huge list of descriptions. Were some people better than others? Yes, some people are better than others. And we definitely screened out some people who are not very good at this. You know, some default people uh, that are untrained are terrible at this. And some people we have difficulty training. Uh, we had a couple panelists who were better than others, but I would say we did not have a, a real set of standouts there. Uh, at the end of this, after we had collected all the data and tested the model, we brought in a, a master perfumer. So Christoph Lodomiel came in as our expert. And he also smelled all these molecules, looking for ones that were particularly interesting for industrial applications, for example. And he had very different descriptions of these than the, than the panel did. So one example, our panel smelled a molecule and, and rated it as uh, sharp, sweet, roasted, and buttery. And uh, the master perfumer smelled it, and he said that smells like a ski lodge or a fireplace without a fire. <laughs> now, you know, I know what that smells like now. That's a really good description. That's right. And, and if you think about sort of an ashy smell of, a, of old ash versus an ash of a fireplace that, you know, recently had a fire, those are different smells. And the, the perfumer was able to sort of pin this down very precisely. And are you able to, to train the AI to know that difference? Right now, we are not able to. So the data that we collected is, is sort of a lower resolution. We sort of think of it, you know, akin to 8-bit graphics. We have some rough idea of what these things smell like but we don't have the level of resolution to get to what the master perfumer is doing. So it can get close to what you think it is, but not really hit it exactly. That's right. It gets in the neighborhood. And we would love to have 15 master perfumers smell 400 molecules for us. But unfortunately, that's a, a lot more difficult to pull off. Is it better at some kind of smell than another? Yeah. So the model is very good at things like garlic and fishy. And part of the reason it's, it's good at those is that there are lots of examples of molecules in our training data that have a garlic or fishy odor. Uh, it's much worse at things like musk. And musk is actually a well-known problem in the field where you have many different molecules that have distinct structures. And all those structures, even though they're very different, all have this musk character. Yeah, I would imagine musk smells a lot different to a lot of different people and certainly to the AI. So musk is a sort of a tricky term. Untrained subjects will often relate it to sort of a, a body odor smell. But the way that perfumers use the word musk is this uh, sweet powdery smell. And we know that some people don't smell certain musks. And indeed, the, the industry to sort of deal with this will often include multiple musks of different structures in a formulation so that they know that everybody will smell at least one of the musks. Love it. I love it. Now, some AI models are, are kind of a black box, right? Can you look at what your model is doing and try to figure out why certain molecules smell the way they do? We can a little bit. There's still parts of the model that are very much a black box. But what was interesting here was that we, we have a neural network, and the neural network first takes this molecular structure and tries to learn as much as possible about how molecular structure relates to perception. And it sort of culminates in this uh, sort of next to last layer. And then out of that layer, it makes predictions for how cheesy something is or how grassy something is in different ways. So that next to last layer has all the information about all the different odor properties. And we can take a look at that. So we can essentially plot that out as a map of coordinates, and we can see which molecules fall close to each other in that map. And so that lets us understand sort of the logic of why the model is able to learn this better than previous models. Hmm. Does this tell you anything about what's going on inside the brain or why we smell things the way we do? I think a lot of the field typically thinks about olfaction from the perspective of a chemist. So we look at a molecule, and if two molecules have the same number of carbons and they both have 
particular sulfur group in them, then people think that those are structurally similar molecules. And the brain has a slightly different take on this. There are lots of cases where we have very similar structures that are perceived very differently or very different structures that are perceived very similarly. And when we looked at this map, we saw that it solved several of these problems in a way that was better than previous models. And uh, we hypothesized about why that might be. And our guess is that what it's doing is looking at this from a metabolic perspective. So if you can think about smell as being important for us to, to find nutrients in certain foods, you could imagine that there's an essential amino acid in a food that has no odor. And that essential amino acid, even though it's odorless, can be broken down into smaller molecules that do have an odor. And so you can imagine this amino acid is split in two, and those two halves don't look the same, but both of them are signals for the same source nutrient. So the olfactory system would like to link those back and, and say those have the same smell, but a chemist would not think that those are structurally similar. Very interesting. You know, with colors, we have the three primary colors. You can mix and match them to make all the other colors. Are there primary smells? We think that there are primary smells, and we're now playing around to try to figure that out. So this paper really was focused on understanding single molecules and how to make predictions about those. But in reality, almost everything that you smell is a complex mixture. And so the next phase of what we want to do with this research is understand how you can take two molecules, A and B, where you know what they smell like, and then predict when you mix them what the mixture will smell like. And if we can tie those two things together, we can go sort of forward and take any recipe and predict what it smells like, or we can go backwards and look at the universe of smells and try to identify these primary odors that would allow us to, to use them as, as sort of simplified building blocks to make a wide variety of odors. You know, our, our tongues have taste buds on them that are sort of dedicated to certain tastes. Does our nose have sort of smell buds that are dedicated to certain smells? There's some debate about this. I think there are a couple of cases where you have a specific receptor that's tied to a specific percept that we would sort of cognitively think of as a category. But there are also other cases where you look at these receptors and they respond across a wide variety of categories. So that's still an unsettled question in the field as to, as to how these actually match up to a specific percept. That, that's cool. Do we all smell things the same way? Like we can all agree on what blue is, but can we all agree on how something smells? Yeah. So in some cases that we know very specifically, uh, that's not true. So one example here is androsterone, And uh, about a third of the population, when they smell this molecule, don't smell anything at all, myself included. A third of the population, when they smell it, smell it as this sort of uh, sweet sandalwood odor. And then another third of people will smell it and find it to be a very intense urine odor. So uh, we've linked this to genetics. Certain people have a receptor that responds to this molecule, and that changes your perception of this. And we find that if you look at you know, one individual and another individual, you'll have these areas of disagreement. But once you put panels together and you get those panels to be large enough, around sort of 12 to 15 people, you can smooth out that variation. And at that point, we find that really the, the differences among smells is really similar to the, the sort of level of noise or differences in vision. So even though we think of vision as sort of this truth that you can put in an RGB number and everybody will think that that number is exactly the same color, in reality, there's variation there too. And so we have this variation in vision, and yet these visual maps have been really profoundly useful. Similarly, we have variation in smell, and, but we think that uh, smell maps will also be extremely useful. That is cool. Now, once you have this model, you used it to predict chemicals that haven't been smelled before, something new that we have never smelled? That's right. So 
In fact, we tried to pick 400 molecules that had never been smelled before for the study. In, in fact, you know, industry has done this previously. Uh, there's a sort of famous example of a molecule that smelled like the ocean that was used in the sort of late 80s in a lot of different fragrances. So prior to that time, perfumers had no access to that particular smell. They discovered a molecule that let them now create lots of things that smell that way. And it resulted in this big boom of uh, that, that particular type of fragrance. As we wrap up, what are your big goals? What would you really love to be able to get out of your research? I think really the, the big goal here is to figure out primary odors. I think that right now, if you think about what you can do with your phone in terms of sharing and recording images or sounds and you know storing them and archiving them and bringing them back up without destroying them, we can't do that with odors right now. And the ability to digitize them, find primary odors will really explode the possibilities for what we can do with smell. Wow. Sounds cool. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Dr. Joel Mainland, member of the Monell Chemical Census Center and adjunct associate professor in the Department of Neuroscience at University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. We have to take a break. And when we come back, how deadly heat waves are for agricultural workers. We'll be right back after this break. Everybody's got a story about a piece of music. I thought this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. It's about pure experience, pure connection, pure joy. This song allowed me to survive. I'm Terrence McKnight with a new season of The Open Ears Project. Every Monday in under 20 minutes, you'll hear a different guest share their story. So you can start your week on the right note. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. And now it's time to check in on the state of science. This is KERA News, St. Louis Public Radio Iowa Public Radio News. Local science stories of national significance. Being a farm worker in America is very hard, and it's dangerous. Hundreds of millions of us have experienced a heat wave this summer. But for people working out in the fields to grow and harvest our food... That heat may be deadly. My next guest reported on their struggle for Harvest Public Media, Investigate Midwest and the Mississippi River Basin Ag and Water Desk. Eva Tesfai is a reporter for KCUR and Harvest Public Media based in Kansas City, Missouri. She reported this story with Monica Cordero at Investigate Midwest. Welcome back to Science Friday. Thanks for having me back. Nice to have you. Okay, you know, a lot of people have experienced the oppressive heat just walking around, but what makes agricultural workers so vulnerable to the heat? Yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of them are working outside. It's quite hard physical labor, um, depending on what you're doing. But yeah, usually it is. And, you know, because of that, they're 35 times more likely to die from the heat. That statistics comes from the National Institute of Health. Um, another reason that they're particularly vulnerable is a lot of them are often paid by how much they pick. So if they're picking apples, they'll be paid by how much they get that day. So that can incentivize them to work harder to try to keep going, even if they're feeling the effects of the heat in negative ways. And I heard that a lot of them don't really feel like they have a choice. Like I spoke to one farm worker. His name was Santiago. He wanted to not share his full name for privacy reasons, but this is what he said. You know, you got to support your family no matter what. You got like two or three kids, you got to work harder. And you're talking about the kind of jobs they were, they're, they're working at. These are really difficult, backbreaking jobs, right? 
Yes. So, um, you know, typically we see these farm workers working in specialty crops. So that's like picking fruits and vegetables. The farm workers I talked to in Missouri, they picked apples and you can imagine those get really heavy after you collect more and more. So you're carrying that and then you're also climbing up a ladder to get the apples, which is, you know, dangerous if you're feeling faint from the heat. And you're also, you know, you're out there all day in the heat looking up at the sun because you're looking up to get the apples. So, you know, a lot of them use eye drops and things like that. I've also, here in the Midwest, we see a lot of farm workers doing detasseling, which is a job that, you know, typically used to be done by, like, high schoolers on their summer break. But um, now we're seeing more farm workers come from Central America. Through the H-2A program, people can come over to the U.S. and work for the summer. Those are kind of the two places that I've seen farm workers working um, in the Midwest. But obviously, you know, on the coast, it's definitely more of those specialty crops. I mentioned that this was a, a deadly kind of heat. How many deaths are we talking about here? Yeah, so we found, Monica Cordero, uh, my colleague, found that there were 121 deaths related to heat. And that was from OSHA data from 2017 to 2022. That number is probably undercounted just because um, it is hard to classify a death as related to heat. Usually heat does aggravate conditions that the body might already have. Um, A lot of people who have died from heat-related causes um, die from cardiac arrest. And also that this is just OSHA data. This is just data where OSHA went and inspected these fatalities. So it likely is more. Are there any regulations there for farm workers when it comes to heat waves? Yeah, so there's no specific regulations when it comes to heat federally. Only four states have regulations when it comes to outdoor workers and heat, and that's California, Oregon, Washington, and Colorado. But OSHA is saying that under the general duty clause, employers do have a duty to protect their employees from the heat. But, you know, some of the advocates for farm workers I talked to said that's not enough. The onus is still on the employers to try to protect from the heat, and if it would be better if there were some sort of standards. Yeah, we, we know there's a huge percentage of farm workers who are undocumented. How does this play into this issue? Um, part of it is it makes it a really hard um, issue to research. Like I said, those deaths were probably undercounted. We don't really know the population size of farm workers in the U.S. because many of them are undocumented. So it makes it hard to to know the amount of heat illness cases, how to know the amount of heat-related deaths, things like that. And on the regulation side, it makes it harder, um, especially if OSHA is, you know, regulating on the general duty clause. You know, they have a system where you can um, submit complaints about this under their national emphasis program on heat. But many farm workers who are undocumented may not want the federal government getting involved, may not feel comfortable enough to report any complaints about the working conditions or even complain to it about to their medical providers or anything like that because, for fear of losing their jobs. It's a very vulnerable population for sure. That's amazing. You know, we know that our climate crisis is intensifying, so I can imagine we can expect that this will get worse for the workers. Yeah, we're definitely seeing, you know, more climate extremes across the U.S. We had a really bad heat wave that covered a lot of the Midwest and the South um, last week. Um, Some parts of the Midwest here where I am had heat index temperatures of over 120 degrees. And one thing we're definitely noticing about the central part of the country is that 
the heat index is is getting higher. Um, so heat index is the calculation that includes humidity and temperature. So it often is like described as like the feels like temperature. And it's important to consider humidity in this story because humidity um, can really exacerbate the the risks that heat poses because it makes it harder for your body to self-regulate by sweating. So one thing that we found working with Climate Central, they found that a large part of the, the central U.S., so the Mississippi River Basin, had an average of six degrees increase in heat index since 1950. So it's definitely getting hotter, more humid. I did talk to some farm workers who had worked there for longer, and they said, you know, every year is different, but overall, some of them said that it does feel like it's getting worse. And especially with humidity, they do describe, you know, not feeling like they're not able to breathe. Some of them even said, like, that working in Missouri, where it's super humid, is worse sometimes than working in places like Florida and Texas, where it's not humid, but it's really, really hot. Could we see some kind of standardization for worker protections on on the federal level? Yeah. So in 2021, OSHA announced that it's going to work on specific regulations for heat. They're working on a national standard for heat. The problem is that process could take years. We kind of have no idea when that is going to come. But yeah, they are working on that. Yeah. Yeah. You know how slowly bureaucracy moves, right? Uh, Is there concern that any OSHA rules, for example, would, would come into practice just too late for these people? Yes, there is concern. And, you know, there are calls from different people to speed up this process. Like United Farm Workers just reissued its call for a national heat standard. Um, Last year, a bill called the Asuncion Valdivia Heat Stress Injury Illness and Death Prevention Act was introduced, and that would force OSHA to issue a heat standard much faster than the normal process. Um, That bill didn't make it anywhere last year, but it has been reintroduced by Democrats this year. So there is this concern. There is this push to try to get this happening faster. Like I said, there was a really bad heat wave last week and people are waiting for for these regulations. But at the same time, I think there's also an awareness that once it is there, it might not be, you know, implemented entirely well. There is worry about the amount of inspectors OSHA has to implement these things. But everyone I talked to um, who advocates for farm workers basically said it's better to have this than nothing. And states are moving too slow on this. Like I said, there was only four states that had actual regulations and we're not really seeing a push for it on the state level. So they are just waiting for the federal government. Hmm. Well, Eva, we hope that your great reporting might speed this stuff up. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thank you. Eva Tesfai is a reporter for KCUR and Harvest Public Media based in Kansas City, Missouri. She reported this story with Monica Cordero at Investigate Midwest. And now we're going to head to Brazil for some good conservation news. The golden lion tamarind is a small charismatic monkey with a mane of red fur. It's a local celebrity in Brazil's Atlantic forest, but this pint-sized primate was on the brink of extinction back in the 1970s. Only about 200 of them lived in the wild. After decades of concentrated conservation efforts, an estimated 4,800 golden lion tamarinds are now living in the wild. They are still endangered, but 
Those who work on this project say it's a really good sign that the population is turning around. Joining me to talk about this is my guest, Carlos Ruiz Miranda, Associate Professor of Conservation and Behavior at Northern Rio de Janeiro State University in Campos dos Goitacazes in Brazil. Welcome to Science Friday. Hello. Thank you. Nice to have you. These golden lion tamarins, uh, they're so cute and they are so charming. And I understand these monkeys are certainly beloved in their native habitat, aren't they? Yes, they are. They are uh, symbol and uh, people just really like to watch them and see them in their backyards when they can. One of the uh, districts that we work, even the uh, public phone booths have the uh, are in the shape of the golden lion tamarind. <laughs> no kidding. Now, I understand that you have a personal history with these monkeys also, that you say they've saved your life. Tell me about that. Twice, actually, I was standing, both cases, I was standing next to a venomous snake and I hadn't seen it. I was just observing the monkeys and the monkeys approached me making all kinds of noises and calls and, and I, I, I was very worried. I thought they were attacking me, but then I realized they were uh, pointing to the snake. Wow. Uh, that was about a foot away from me. Yes, I have to say that they saved my life twice. Wow, so you have a, a, a really vested interest in liking them even more. I know, um, I, I'm in debt. <laughs> you're in debt. Oh, they, are, they are so special to you and to the community. What is their family structure like? So, yes, the Tamarins live in a extended family structure. You know, the male and the female and their kids from previous births. The, the female, most of the time, 90% of the time, gives birth to twins, sometimes triplets. They are very heavy for the mother, so everybody helps take care of the baby. So the father carries them on, on his back, and then the older siblings bring food and also carry them on their back. So they have a very tight family unit. Sounds like they're very similar to the uh, to, to people's family structure. Yes, yes, they are. Now take us back in time. I mentioned at the beginning that uh, there, were, there weren't very many of them not so long ago. Why did their population drop so drastically? So mostly the uh, loss of, of their habitat. I mean, the, these monkeys live about 80 kilometers north of the city of Rio. And, uh, you know, this is where people live and work. They're in the coastal plain, which was always used for sugarcane or coffee cycle. So they were in a very active area. So there was a lot of deforestation, you know, the Atlantic forest lost about 90% of its forest in the previous centuries. Hmm. So what kind of work does it take, the, the, you and your conservation scientists, to restore this population? Yes, this is the work is to uh, well, restore the population by restoring the habitat. Uh, we even reintroduce monkeys from zoos all over the United States and Europe. Wow, and how do you do that when you say restore the habitat? What do you have to restore exactly? connect the uh, patches of forest that were left uh, that are unconnected and are most of them are private lands so that's a uh, uh, restoration and connecting forest and and it requires the the uh, help of the uh, local community this is science friday from wnyc studios now i understand there was a yellow fever outbreak in these monkeys tell tell me about the vaccination campaign you helped with yes 2017 there was a, a yellow fever outbreak in Brazil, and it has been a long time since we have seen yellow fever in this part of, of Brazil. And uh, it was very swift, and it hit the monkeys uh, very hard, and we lost about a third of the population 
So we, we use the human vaccine, but we have to kind of uh, adapt it to the monkeys. So we, we tested it and it looked like it was safe. And so we started a vaccination campaign uh, for two reasons. One's to protect the monkeys from uh, the next outbreak, which usually this outbreak is coming like 10 year cycle. And there's a good expectation that there may be another outbreak in the next two or three years. So we vaccinated the monkeys and it's part of our what uh, scientists call now the, the one health approach, where, where you deal with uh, human and animal health, part of the same process. Uh, so two things that we did, vaccinate the monkeys and then make a big campaign for humans to get vaccinated. So next outbreak, it will be very uh, subdued because we're, we're going to have both the monkeys and, the, and people vaccinated. Did you actually have to go out and give individual shots to the monkeys? Yes, we, we capture the monkeys and we bring them to our like our field laboratory. And yes, we have to uh, give them uh, injections one by one. How many monkeys would you think you've done? A little bit over 400. It, it was slow at the beginning because we, we were testing. We were in the third stage of vaccine tests, like like, like we do with people. So we, we were testing them in the... Right. A test in the population. So the first 150 monkeys we had to uh, capture twice. We capture them, take blood out, vaccinate them, then release them. And we have to go about uh, 45 days later and capture them again and take a sample of blood to see if the vaccine had worked. Uh, and it did really well. About 92% of the monkeys showed that they were immunized. So now we just capture and vaccinate. You continued, you continued to do that? Yes, we, we have an aim. It's going to be around 800 based on our, on our goals of vaccination, which is going to be to vaccinate enough monkeys so that the population will never go down to a, a number that uh, they would not be able to bounce back on their own. Well, you have fixed the habitat. You have gone out and vaccinated the monkeys and will continue to do that. Is there still any other kind of work you have to do to make sure the populations continue to thrive? Uh, yes, the, the part of the connecting the habitat, uh, the, the big thing now is working with people, and we have been doing this from the beginning, so that what we need to protect the forest area further, and even though they're in private lands, people can do private uh, reserves and, uh, in their land. But also we're we working with sustainable economic activities that, so that people, you know, they, they uh, this is a rural area, but people need to uh, make a living and, and carry on with their lives. So the tamarinds are part of it. So we foster like ecotourism and organic farming. So we work together with the community to find what the solutions, economic solutions are going to be. And it's going relatively well. Wow. So you're hopeful. Yes, I am. Ever hopeful and optimistic. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. And I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. Ah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Carlos Ruiz Miranda, Associate Professor of Conservation and Behavior at Northern Rio de Janeiro State University in Campos de Goite Casas in Brazil. We have to take a break. And when we come back, unraveling the mysteries of the Y chromosome, what scientists are learning about this genetic outlier, stay with us. Everybody's got a story about a piece of music. I thought this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. It's about pure experience, pure connection, pure joy. This song allowed me to survive. I'm Terrence McKnight with a new season of The Open Ears Project. 
Every Monday in under 20 minutes, you'll hear a different guest share their story. So you can start your week on the right note. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Last week, we briefly mentioned the sequencing of the Y chromosome recently reported in the journal Nature. It is an important achievement. The Y chromosome is a bit of a genetic outlier. It's tiny, but it also plays a key role in sex characteristics and some diseases. So this week, I'd like to dig a little deeper into that discovery with two of the people involved in sequencing and interpreting the structure of the human Y chromosome. Adam Filippi is a senior investigator in the Computational and Statistical Genomics Branch of the National Human Genome Research Institute at NIH. Welcome back to Science Friday. Thanks, Ira. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice to have you. Dr. Katerina Makova is a professor of biology at Penn State University in State College, PA. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Let me begin with you, Dr. Makova. Let's get situated, can we? Remind us of what the Y chromosome is and what it does. So the Y chromosome is one of the two sex chromosomes that our genomes harbor. The Y chromosome is specific to males, and it is present only in one copy in males, unlike the other chromosomes that are present in two copies in males. One we get from the mother, another one we get from the father, but the Y chromosome, the men get only from their father. And how is it different from other chromosomes? First of all, it harbors the SRY gene, which is important for male determination. This is the main difference. It also harbors many other genes important for spermatogenesis, and it also harbors many repeats. This is how it differs from the other chromosomes. And is it smaller than the other chromosomes? It is rather small, yes. It is uh, only about 60 million bases long. And is that significant too, the size? Yes, the size is significant because the Y chromosome has a counterpart, the X chromosome. And these two chromosomes evolved from a pair of just normal non-sex chromosomes about 170 million years ago. And originally they were the same size. However, the Y chromosome shrank in size, but the X chromosome stayed just the way it probably was originally. And why the Y chromosome shrank so much is a really interesting uh, biological question. That is interesting. Dr. Filippi, when we last spoke, we were talking about the filling in the gaps in the human genome to get a complete sequence. Why did the Y chromosome take extra work? Yeah, it's these repeats that Katerina mentioned. And in that respect, the Y is very different than all of the other chromosomes, even different compared to the X. And it's this accumulation of these repeats of, you know, tandem variety where you have these head to tail repeating arrays. There's also um, a big enrichment of what we call palindromic repeats. And so just like you think of a palindrome in the English language, it reads the same forward and backwards. There's a lot of sequences in the Y that have this unique property that you really don't find anywhere else in the genome. And because of all of these interesting repletes and complex structures, it's made the Y incredibly difficult to solve as a puzzle. And um, that's what made it the last of the 24 for us to complete. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to piece together fragments of DNA, 
that's what makes the Y harder to sequence than any random chunk of DNA? Yeah, it's exactly like a jigsaw puzzle when I use that analogy that people always save the repetitive bits of the puzzle for last. You know, the repeating buildings, the Waldos, the grass, the sky. <laughs> uh, it's easy to do the unique bits. And luckily, you know, 90% or so of the human genome is unique enough to put together. You have a lot of the edges in, in there already. Yep, the edges are easy. You can put the faces together. It's all the repetitive bits. And uh, a lot of those live on the Y. And we think one of the reasons for that is because the Y is exposed to a lot of different evolutionary pressures. And so, for instance, as Katerina was saying, most of your autosomes or the non-sex chromosomes always come in pairs. You have two copies of one, two copies of two, et cetera, one from your mother, one from your father. The Y chromosome, it's only in 50% of the population. And those people only have one copy usually. And so there's just fewer copies of this chromosome floating around in the population. And that exposes it to these different evolutionary pressures. And so it accumulates these repeats as a way of kind of adapting to this unique environment that it lives in. Okay, so walk us through a bit about how you go about a project like this. Where, where does the DNA come from? What happens to it? The DNA from this individual came from a project actually that George Church started a number of years ago called the Personal Genomes Project. Um, and that project was very innovative in its way of consenting individuals into research. And so it gave them a lot of extensive training on how they might uh, envision their data being shared in the future, what risks might come with that and so forth. And so everybody that bought into this project was fully aware that their genomic material would be made publicly available for the world to see. And they were highly educated on what that meant. And so that allows us now when we sequence genomes from these individuals to publicly release that data without any ethical concerns. And so this comes from an individual in that project. It's a male individual. We focused primarily on the Y chromosome here, but we did sequence and assemble the whole genome. The issue now is that it's become so cheap and easy to do whole genome sequencing that the analysis is the bottleneck. And so we sequenced the whole genome and then we kind of isolated out the Y and spent a year or so really analyzing the composition and the characteristics of that one particular chromosome. Interesting. So Dr. Makova, you, you have this sequence. What does it tell you? So uh, first of all, uh, we knew previously that the Y chromosome is very repetitive, but we just didn't know how repetitive it really is. So it is 85% composed of repeats compared to only about 54% repeat composition for other chromosomes. So there is a big difference here. And uh, the repeats on the Y chromosome, they come in different flavors. Some of these repeats are transposable elements that jump from one location in the genome to another. Another group of repeats are satellites. These are the tandemly repeated arrays of DNA. And some of them form centromeres, for example. And these are the structures on the chromosomes that are required for cell division to proceed. And some, as Adam already mentioned, are palindromes. So these are these uh, inverted repeats of DNA sequence that actually allow pairing of DNA within the Y chromosome. So the Y chromosome is unique is that it cannot exchange information with other chromosomes, like the X, for example, over most of its length, but it can exchange information with itself, within itself. And this allows it to get rid of many deleterious mutations, as well as of some 
unwanted repeats, some of deleterious um, repeats such as transposable elements. So is it doing its own housekeeping, basically? Is that what you're saying? It looks this way to us, yeah. I always like to think of it, you know, as keeping backup copies. And so in most of our cells, you have two copies of the rest of the genome. And if you have an error or a mutation in one, say you spent too much time at the beach and you got some UV irradiation, that double-stranded break can be repaired by the homologous chromosome. The Y doesn't have that luxury, and so it kind of has to keep its own backup copies. Let me move on to the second paper that was published in the same issue of Nature that looks at the sequence of 43 different Ys, and they found that they're very different, Dr. Markova. What does that mean? First of all, this tells us that the Y chromosome evolves really fast, even within humans. And there is almost twofold variation in size on the Y chromosome, even among humans. But most of this variation is outside of genes. Most of this variation is at repetitive sequences. But some of this variation exists in genes. In particular, the variation exists in the different copy number of the genes that are important for spermatogenesis. And we still have to wait and see what this means in terms of function, what this might mean in terms of fertility. Is this surprising to find this? This is surprising, uh, but um, some of the work on the uh, variation in copy number of genes was done before. And we know that if you take a look at 100 different men from around the world, they will differ in the copy number of these genes, just each of them will have a unique a very combination of copy number of uh, spermatogenesis genes on the Y chromosome. So the variation is immense, but this variation in size has never been shown before. This is a totally new discovery. Interesting. I was, that leads me to this other question you may have anticipated. If there's such variability in the Y from one person to another, do more samples from more people tell us anything more useful? Uh, certainly. I think uh, this uh, discovery of this immense variation of the Y chromosome among different humans, among different men, is really a new starting point to start associate the Y chromosome genetics with complex traits in humans including susceptibility to diseases, but also potentially some phenotypic traits as well. Another point, you know, thinking about the evolution of these chromosomes, we like to think about things like natural selection happening at the level of the organism, right? You know, the bear is weak, it dies in the forest, the better bears take the place, but it's happening at multiple levels. And so the individual sperm are also competing against each other in a winner-take-all battle. And so if one of those sperm cells gets some type of mutation that makes it swim a little faster or live a little longer, it can outcompete its brothers in that race. And so uh, this is what I'm talking about when I talk about these different evolutionary pressures that the Y chromosome is exposed to. Because when those sperm are competing, it's really the Y chromosomes in there driving them uh, that are also competing. Hmm. When we talk about some diseases being sex-linked, they, they travel along with the Y chromosome. Does this give us any insight into why or any route to help people with those conditions? This is certainly the work that we hope will be happening in the future. And we hope that this opens new avenues for research of sex-linked uh, genetic diseases. 
because there are several types of cancer that are linked to the chromosome Y genetics in particular. Chromosome Y might have tumor suppression properties and um, having a copy of chromosome Y might mediate um, some cancer phenotypes. If the Y is generally inherited down the male line, do all the Y chromosomes trace their way back to a single ancestor, Dr. Makova? Well, we do think so, yes. Just as uh, we talk about the mitochondrial Eve, we are talking about the chromosome Y, Adam. A different Adam, I'll point out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a neat bookend, Ira, that the project that we launched to finish these last gaps in the genome, the first chromosome that we started with was the X chromosome. And the last chromosome that we finished was the Y. Um, and the X has some also interesting disease-linked genes for some of the same reasons we mentioned earlier, that in XY individuals, you only have one copy of both the X and the Y. So if you inherited from your mother a defective copy of a certain gene on the X chromosome, you don't have a backup copy. And so there's certain X-linked diseases that are more frequent in males for that reason. And so the sex chromosomes definitely have interesting um, mm. sex-linked disease associations. That is fascinating. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios talking about the Y chromosome with Adam Filippi and Katrina Makova. I know you're both working on a project to put the human Y into context with other primates' Y chromosomes. Who wants to tell me about that? Yeah, so we are currently deciphering the complete telomere to telomere sequences of the Y chromosomes of our close relatives, chimpanzee, bonobo, uh, gorilla, orangutan, and gibbon. We hope to talk uh, more about this in the future with you, but our preliminary results suggest that the Y chromosome has evolved very rapidly in primates. Just to give you a preview, the proportion of genes that are shared between human and chimpanzee Y chromosomes is as low as the proportion of genes shared between human and chicken outside of sex chromosomes. And we diverged uh, from uh, chimpanzee lineage about 6 million years ago, whereas human and chicken diverged 300 million years ago. Wow. Now that you have the sequence, where do you go from here? So uh, first of all, uh, the Y chromosome carries um, segments of DNA that are important for male fertility. So uh, having the reference of the Y chromosome, the accurate reference of the Y chromosome opens up studies of male fertility. It also opens up functional studies of repetitive elements, such as satellites uh, and their role for the rest of the genome, not just for the Y chromosome. Uh, it opens up additional studies of Y chromosome variation in humans. And I think the most important one is that it allows scientists to incorporate the Y chromosome into studies of predisposition to genetic diseases. Dr. Filippi, do you have anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I find um, the sequencing of these non-human ape species um, both incredibly interesting and incredibly promising for our understanding of human health going forward. Because when we look at the non-human apes, so Katerina, can correct me if I'm wrong, but if we're talking about the great apes, 
they share a common ancestor going back around 12 million years ago. And we're talking about an evolution of a genome on these independent lineages for 12 million years. And evolution is very creative, and it will try all possibilities of mutations and rearrangements and so forth. And so when we look at things in those genomes that have not changed, that tells us that they're incredibly important to the genome and to the function of the individual. And so then if we're in a clinical setting and sequencing a new genome of, say, a newborn that has a rare disease, and we see a mutation in one of these regions that's incredibly conserved across all of our near relatives, we know that it's functionally very important. And so that can help uh, disease detectives kind of narrow in onto the mutations that they're looking for when they're trying to diagnose an actual patient in the clinic with a rare disease. Wow, this is all fascinating stuff. Uh, we have run out of time. I want to thank both of you for taking time to be with us today. Adam Filippi is a senior investigator in the Computational and Statistical Genomics Branch of the National Human Genome Research Institute that's at NIH, and Katerina Makova, professor of biology at Penn State University. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Ira. And that's it for this week. If you missed any part of the program or you would like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. You can find us all week on social media, Facebook, X, the former Twitter, or with our newsletters, sciencefriday.com slash newsletters. Or you can reach out to us the old-fashioned way, sci-fry at sciencefriday.com. We'd love to hear from you. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.